0: And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Early in Barack Obama's campaign for president, a French journalist showed up on the scene to cover the campaign and uh, became a real presence on the campaign trail. And I learned that Laura Heim was one of France's great broadcast journalists, having covered everything from war to American political campaigns. Most recently she served as communications director for Emmanuel Macron in his uh, extraordinary campaign for the presidency of France and she's spent the fall quarter at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago sharing her observations about that election, the state of democracy in France and the United States. Laura Heim so Glad to have you here, both on this podcast and at the Institute of Politics, where you've been a fellow all spring. Um, you're It
1: a- was a fantastic experience. I, I can tell you that uh, I uh, didn't know at all the university world. I did not know at all um, this special bubble in the American society And um, it gave me hope because there's a new generation here which is ready to do things and, uh, in my opinion, which is really interested by different topics.
0: Yeah. No, this this is why we do the work. And it is, you know, every time you get despairing about the world, you come here and you spend time with these young people. And you think, you know, the future can be better.
1: Yeah, and they challenge you and they understand what's happening and they're thinking in a global way and they still have hope and they're trying to understand different aspects of the American society and also the world. So it was an amazing experience. Yeah. And, um, yes, I mean, you, you created... I, I, I know you're very shy sometimes, <laughs> but uh, I think you really created something quite unique here to well, pose thank and to you. think.
0: Well, it's certainly something really satisfying because these kids are not wedded to the sort of orthodoxies of the past they're skeptical but they're not cynical and um as we said they they do give you hope let me talk about your yes. life and career i know you're just filibustering so we don't get to the main topic here but uh um you uh your your folks were not uh we were not journalists. Your father was a doctor, mm-hmm. uh, your mother was a, a music teacher. Yeah, she did. Tell, tell me about them.
1: Oh, uh, they were extraordinary, they were quite intellectual. Um, my father was a doctor, he wanted me to become a doctor, and he did not understand why I wanted to, to be a journalist. And my mother had a passion, it was classical music. So uh, I was raised with people uh, we were doing fellowship in my home to become a classical pianist and uh, so uh, she, I was, she was I, Israeli. Uh she was half French and half Israeli and um I was uh, raised uh, in a non-Jewish way. I mean my my parents were not religious. And, uh, we were living in France. Did they have
0: a history? Yes, my family uh,
1: suffered tremendously from the Holocaust. My father's family had to escape in 1941 not to be killed. So there's a lot of stories in my family. And my mother also was living in France at this moment. She was young, so she had to hide in the countryside. And my father's family had to get false papers they had to leave France, they went to Spain, they took a boat and they went to Argentina for six years. Mm -hmm. And uh, the family, which didn't do that, was killed in Auschwitz. So when they came back, they wanted to come back to France after living for six years in Argentina, when my father, who at the time was 13 years old, was raised. When they came back, they had to rebuild everything. And they believed in France after war. So they rebuilt everything. And they became quite successful. And then my father didn't want to be a um, CEO of the company of my grandfather. He wanted to be a doctor. He wanted to take care of the people. So, I What kind of
0: doctor was he? Just he was
1: uh, a kind of, he was, he was a very good um, generalist doctor. Mm -hmm. And uh, then uh, they created this kind of club in Paris with my mother about uh, discussions, human rights, classical music. Again, when I went to bed, I always had someone in my house who was playing piano and uh, they really wanted to have a quite interesting life in paris and it was the golden years in paris at this moment it was the reconstruction so i was born there and um yeah i uh, I, I i loved them very much
0: you um you at an early age you were uh pretending to be a radio broadcaster Yes. So, what is it that attracted you to journalism? Because, um, I think as I, you say, you you were being urged to follow different career paths.
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. I was. Uh, I mean, when you ask my family what happened to me, they still have this question: what happened <laughs> to her? <laughs> but why did she do that? I think I was watching TVs, and I was very inspired by people who were covering uh, historical events. So I was looking at uh, people, for instance, uh, I remember when I was 13, there was the war in the Malouin in Argentina. Uh, there, was, there were a lot of things happening in Central America, revolution. And, and I was very inspired by that. And there was also a lot of things in the Middle East. And I, I really wanted to be like them. I watched them and I said, wow, they're covering the world. They're explaining to us what's happening, I want to be like them. So yeah. I decided to um, do political school. And uh, it was not for me. And I decided that, okay, I want to be on the field. So instead of going to school for a lot of years, why am not trying right away to be in the radio? And I convinced someone to hire me in a radio. I when was you were, 17. What, 17 years yes. old? Yes.
0: So, so you came from this highly educated yes. family. That probably didn't sit well with Drama. them. That you were going to... Drama. Yeah, I, I mean,
1: my, my mother was, what's happening? And my mm. father was, uh, are you sure you want to do that? And then he paused and he said, you just have to be happy. So if you're happy, I'm going to support you.
0: That's a good parent.
1: I think it was perfect. Right. He understood me very well
0: yeah and he obviously obviously understood that this was a passion of yours mm-hmm. and you fell uh and you talked your way into a job as you were saying, so
1: my first job was to bring coffees. I did that for six months. I was bringing coffees to people all the time. So uh-huh. I was in a radio and uh they did i was an intern they didn't know what to do with me. I really ha- had an interview with someone and I said, give me a, an internship for six months and i was I convinced this person and I brought coffees for six months and I make the point to be the first one to arrive and the last one to leave.
0: This is such (laughs) an important lesson, you know. I mean, I think about my own life and I wanted to be a journalist. I went back after my first year of college to New York City and I had no real background Mm -hmm. at all and I knocked on maybe 75 doors until I found a little newspaper, the Villager newspaper in in, in Greenwich Village that was sort of down on its luck. And they figured if they could hire me, they paid me $50 a week to Mm -hmm. do everything. Mm -hmm. And I was willing to do everything, that it was a good deal. And I spent six months there, and it it was foundational. I mean, I learned so much doing it.
1: I learned a lot, and then I wanted a job. And I wanted to be a reporter. So I found out that... After six months of delivering Yes. Coffee. And then um, I went to see the news director and he said the only job you can have is to walk on the radio from 5 o'clock in the evening until 3 o'clock in the morning. You have to remember I was... 18. I wanted to go to party. So, to work five days a week when you're 18, from five o'clock in the evening to three o'clock in the morning, it's no life. And I said, Yeah, I'm going to do that. So, I did that.
0: There must have been stuff going on at, after three. Yeah. Yeah, I can
1: tell you that I still know all the places in Paris open after uh, three I know, o'clock. <laughs> I know this
0: story because I was a <laughs> yeah. nightside reporter myself. Yeah. So,
1: so I, 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 it was really a good year. The the best years. I was with a group of people. We all we see each other. since then uh we and we really worked hard, and we were preparing what you're going to say it's here, the morning show, so we were doing that and then you
0: had you had some great mentors back then as well,
1: yeah, I think I worked hard and I, I was very competitive, and I was pushing the doors uh, uh there was someone who told me when you put the foot in the door, it's really difficult after to. Uh, to close it. To close it. Yes. And I was a little bit known for that with sometimes critics. I was a woman, so I pushed also for me as a woman in the newsroom. And uh, it was absolutely fascinating. And I was really part of this machine. Then I noticed that uh, you have a lot of French holidays, you know, in France. And journalists in France, they're taking holidays. They don't stop. So in the <laughs> summer... <laughs> it's holidays and the newsroom are empty and when the newsroom are empty when there's a big story happening they're taking the interns or the young people so I didn't go on holidays I stayed in Paris and I did my first uh, exclusive in the middle of August there was a very famous tv personality who was missing he went to Africa and people uh, for three days were looking for him And they thought it was a kind of uh, promotion for himself to make think he was missing. And in fact, he has been kidnapped and he was killed in Africa. And Mm. it was a big story. And I was right there. So then, slowly but surely, I made my way up. And uh, I stayed in... How old were you when you did that story? I was uh, 19... Mm-hmm. And then someone was uh, listening to me all the time during August. And uh, he, he was the new owner. And uh, he lived in the United States. He was uh, fascinated by the United States. He was He's a very famous French journalist. His name is Philippe Labreau. He's a writer. And he wanted to help young people. So when he was listening to me, he said, how old is this woman? And someone told him she's 19. So he said, I want to see her. So I had a meeting with him and he said, what do you want to do? And he asked me if I wanted to cover the nightlife in Paris, if I wanted to go to movies, theaters and to do that and to have my own small program. And I said, yes, and after still on the radio? Or still on the radio, mm-hmm. prime time. I I was terrible at it. I mean, it was the worst <laughs> time of my life. But, I mean, I was... Because you weren't
0: interested in the yeah, subject? Yeah,
1: I wasn't... I mean, it was... Uh, I mean, it was interesting because I had fun in a way, uh, but it was really like you know, go to uh, the Cannes Festival, go to uh, a lot of Hollywood things, uh, <laughs> and it was not it for sounds me. Sounds like hard duty. Yeah, but that <laughs> that was the trick. I mean, people were oh my god, you paid to go to see movies and to go to theaters, and then uh, there was a kind of wake up call. And it was a very important thing in my mind. I was at the Cannes Film Festival, and one of my friends, I began with this friend, was in China, and he was covering Tiananmen. Yeah. And I was, what I'm doing here in Cannes? I don't want to be in Cannes. I want to go to Tiananmen, and I want to cover what's happening in China. I was really about that. And I went to see my boss, and I told him, this is it for me. I'm quitting. I don't want to do that because I didn't choose journalism to do that. And he was, what? You become famous here? What's happening? I said, no, I really want to do something about the world we live in. And uh, at this time, there was a group of people who created a small video journalist agency which was called Kappa Mm -hmm. and the idea was very simple no correspondent in front of the camera you act as a photojournalist but with a small camera and I have to remember that it was in 1989 it was quite a revolution and you're not going to make a lot of money but you're going to cover the world and be with interesting people and I was the, the inspiration was Robert Kappa the photographer who you know, was uh, uh, the famous war photographer. And uh, we decided to do that with a small channel at this time. The name of the small channel was Canal Plus. And we created a weekly news magazine, which was called 24 Hours. And for 24 hours, with five different video journalists, you showing a world event and it became extremely successful because we were able to do a lot of cinema verite where the characters in front of the cameras where the people were following and basically uh, it was a tribe and it really it became very very important in my life so from and then,
0: you uh, took you to some pretty yes, pretty I, tough I, and yeah. and dangerous places Yeah
1: I didn't speak about danger I was always interested to be where it's happening. And I, I, I always say to people who ask ask me this question, I, I don't like uh, the, this uh, thing about, oh, you have been a war correspondent. I, I don't think at all like Like that, I really think that when you go into dangerous situation, you just want to witness what's happening. And um, so, the
0: famine in Somalia. Yeah, I did Somalia. Bosnia.
1: Yes, the beginning of the war in Bosnia. Yes, Gaza. Uh, Very interesting for me because uh, I was Jewish, so I uh, went to um, the other side, and uh, it was very. um, And what did
0: you learn there?
1: I learned that I uh, met uh, ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And that was what I wanted to to show. And uh, I learned that, uh, you know, uh, when people want freedom, want independence, want to do something, at one point, life does not matter anymore. There's an idea which is better than them. And that's what I wanted to document.
0: You know, I'm interested, if uh, if I could just stop there for a second, about being, mm-hmm. being Jewish mm-hmm. and covering... Uh, that side of the conflict, and whether you felt conflicted yourself in any way.
1: I uh, felt that I didn't know Israel and that I didn't want at this time to know Israel. I was working in Palestine with the Palestinian people, and I really understood a lot of things that I didn't understand when I was in Paris. And then, years after, because I'm, I, I went a lot to Gaza, I went a lot to Ramallah, I went a lot to uh, Bethlehem, uh, years after, I said, uh, I have to stop because now the conflict is there. I'm Jewish, and what's happening when I'm covering the Palestinian cause, especially when the Palestinian cause, especially in 2003, uh, became really radicalized uh, with a lot of suicide bombing. Uh, that was more and more difficult. And I. it was also, I became very depressed. I mean, when you're in the Middle East, when you're covering what's happening after a certain point, you, the story is getting on you, and um, you're really going down if you're not careful. It's, it's, I still have mixed feeling about covering the Middle East.
0: We're going to take a, a short break and we'll be back with Laura Heim. You also uh had an interview with Fidel Castro. How, <laughs> how, how did you get that interview?
1: Oh, it was a kind of thing. Uh, I sit down in a hotel. It was during the Olympic Games. Uh, he was in Barcelona at this time, and I heard that he was coming. So I went to the hotel, and I sit down for one day, and I wait for him to get out. And when he get out, I stopped him, and I was speaking a little bit of Spanish, and he stopped in front of me, and he said... Buenos dias, como esta? <laughs> and then I began to speak and I had, it was not a sit down interview, but it was a kind of encounter. But uh, that's also uh, the things that I used to do because I was with Kappa and we had someone who was pushing us to be on the road all the time, to try things which were never done before, uh, to be idealist and uh, to really push to, to get closer to the real event. So we did that. And Castro was part of this time. Yes.
0: I'm gonna I'm gonna interrupt this yeah. to go back. I, I feel like I'm thinking in my head. I, I need to pursue one thing, and then we'll pick it yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With okay, you say that the Middle East became more difficult mm-hmm. to uh, cover, presumably not just because of the, the 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 threats associated with it.
1: No, you don't think about the threat.
0: But what what? Why did it become more difficult? Uh,
1: because you always have to choose side. And they are good and bad people on both sides. And uh, that's where the conflict happened for me. You know, which side am I choosing? And I don't want to choose a side. As a journalist, I want to be neutral. I want to see what's happening. So that was difficult. And uh, I maybe we're going to speak a little bit of that. But uh, I was in Baghdad also. Uh, yes. And um, it has a deep effect on me. So I wanted to do a pause from my Middle East experience. And then I'm always saying it's addicting because when my father died, uh, two days, and I had a very, I'm still moved about that, but I had to go back to the Middle East two days after. When when was that? It was uh, in July 2014, and uh, two days after... The war in Gaza began, and I said to my editor at the time, okay, let me go back to the Middle East.
0: Mm-hmm. What conclusions have you drawn from that, all of that reporting there about the prospects for resolving, uh, <clears throat> resolving this?
1: I think it needs strong people, and strong people with sensitivities and sensibilities. And On both from both sides. Do you see them now? No, I don't. I see a radicalization from both sides. And I will always encourage people who are working in the Middle East to live the ordinary life on both sides. I did a documentary about uh, a Palestinian family and an Israeli family, and I was working at the time as a video journalist producer for 60 Minutes too, And... um, I remember this story vividly. There were two women. One woman, her name was Rachel. She was 20 years old. And the other woman, her name was Ayat. She was also 20 years old. They really look similar. Rachel was living in Israel. Ayat was living in Palestine. And then one day, Ayat decided to blow herself up in a supermarket and she killed Rachel. Hmm. And I documented the families from both sides. And I follow them year after year after year. I went to see the mothers. I went to see the brothers. I wanted to understand those two women who looked like sisters. I think Newsweek did a cover on them. What happened to them? And how at one point I think they have been in school together and suddenly boom one is killing the other They didn't know each other even if when they were child they had been in school what happened to them and what was very interesting for me year after year is to see slowly but surely the radicalization of the two mothers I wanted the two mothers I think five years after to met it was impossible Mm. and I told them but you lost a daughter you have to meet that's how peace is going to begin and they never wanted to meet.
0: Listening to you reminds me, in, in 1994, I was with a group of Americans who uh, went to Israel, and we met with uh, Yitzhak Rabin shortly mm-hmm. before he was killed. And uh, this was in the midst of the Oslo peace process, and someone in the group said, what will you tell the settlers who uh, will have to move if uh, you strike this deal? And he said, "Very." I remember very wearily, he said, I'd say that, too many, too many of our children have lost their lives. Too much blood has been spent, and peace has a price, and Ooh. this is a price. And it speaks to what you were saying. He was a leader, and you could sense it. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've said this before, but I think when you consider the last 100 years of history, there probably wasn't a more destructive act than the uh, young Israeli who, uh, who shot Rabin, because I think that...
1: That was the beginning of the big shift in Israel. Yes. And it still is, yes. with also the religion aspect happening at this moment.
0: You moved to the U.S. So in
1: 1992, I was in Kappa, and I fell in love with New York. I went on holidays in New York. I was walking in the street in New York, and I said, that's it. It's, I have to <laughs> live there. So uh, I came back to Paris and I said that to my family was what? You're going to move back.
0: By this by this time, they're probably used to your
1: yes baffle, uh, I baffling decision making. Yeah, I had a big crisis with my mother about Sarajevo because when I came back from Sarajevo, my mother was in tears, telling me I didn't do a daughter to go to Sarajevo, and uh, it was very difficult. But
0: because she was worried about it. she you.
1: was extremely worried, and you have also to think about people who are so much worried about you when you're doing this type of work. But anyway, so I moved to uh, New York. I decided to convince uh, Canal Plus, which was at the time, and Canal Plus for the American audience was uh, became very, very successful. After in the United States, they were part of even the Universal that produced a lot of movies. But at the time, it was like the beginning of HBO, and I decided to uh, convince my boss to uh, create uh, a first uh, office in the United States in New York. And he looked at me, he said, "Okay, for three months." So it's my theory. I had a foot in the door. So I went for three months and then I stayed 12 years. (laughs) And uh, I developed Canal Plus. I always, uh, during my holidays, I didn't take any French holidays. I was really living the New York way. And I always made the point to do two documentaries about important issues when I was in New York. So I did a lot of documentaries for Kappa and I was also uh, in New York. And then uh, documentaries elsewhere. Ah, so uh, completely. You know. I did a documentary about uh, Calcutta women who are trying to uh, fight AIDS and who created a program to educate poor women in Calcutta. Uh, I I did something about crimes in America with a very famous photojournalist, and uh, we were doing a lot of things about chain gangs in in Alabama. Uh, I really wanted. Still, because you can be in a bubble when you're in a corporation. And I really wanted to make sure that I was not staying in this bubble and that I was going to be able to see always, to always see the real world. So I did that. And then in 2001... Um, 9-11.
0: 9 happened. And that was right. You were living nearby.
1: Yeah, I have a very... uh, I I wrote a book about that. uh, So I'm going to try to be uh, quick telling you the story. Um, I was doing a story about uh, gang violence in Miami. uh, And then I was supposed to fly back on um, the... 10 of September, and I decided to fly back on 9/11 in the morning. My apartment was three blocks away from the World Trade Center, so I was in a plane on 9/11 and grounded, landing yeah. in uh, New York. It was 8:30 because I took my plane at 6 o'clock in the morning, and it has a huge impact of me because my. Um, Basically, I, I, I know people who were there. My neighborhood was destroyed. I really saw something, of course, like all of us Americans uh, that I never saw before. And I became very American there. Yeah, no, it's interesting <laughs> you say
0: all of us I, Americans. That was the moment when you yeah, decided to yeah, become American Yeah, it was in citizen. my mind,
1: but I really wanted at this time to to. to to shift big uh-huh. time, and uh, I, I decided. What, to de- it,
0: what? But explain that decision to me more. Will you?
1: The unity of the United States at this particular moment, mm-hmm. which I found extremely moving, uh, and I became very patriotic about the best values in America and mm-hmm. the endless possibilities. But I saw in New York during nine eleven. Uh, The best of people. I I, I was very moved by that.
0: You know, it's interesting because we are very divided now as a country. And I mean, there's no disputing that. And yet when things happen, whether it's a hurricane or some other event, you see people rallying to each other's side.
1: Yeah, that's what I'm calling. uh, So, you know, I'm trying to
0: reconcile the fact that when 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 things happen, Houston was a good example of that. Mm-hmm. You know, people rallied. They weren't checking each other's voter registration card. They weren't asking themselves. They weren't asking quizzes about politics. They were leaping in, trying to help each other, mm-hmm. and it was inspiring. And then we retreat into our uh, back into our silos uh, and and paint um, these paint portraits of each other that. Uh, you know are often dehumanizing it's a uh, it's 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 baffling this this uh, the other thing that happened as a result of 9/11 is a war and uh, yeah. you mentioned earlier that you would you went to Baghdad you spent four years there
1: yeah I was uh, so 9/11 happened um, I became more and more a video journalist like a photojournalist I documented the downfall of Enron, which also had an impact on me, because I saw how you can be left in America in less than one hour when a corporation is going down. And then I decided to do this type of work with my small camera. And then I went back to Israel for French TV, and the bus exploded in front of me. And I had a camera with me Dan water was across the street. And he was taking a coffee. He didn't have a camera, and he came to me said, "You have a camera? Can you film for me?" Mm-hmm. And I filmed in the way that I knew how to film for French TV, this kind of cinema verité way. So Dan Rather was moving around the situation. They really liked my things. It made the opposite This would
0: became a a kind of partnership.
1: Yeah. And then Rada told me you have to come to New York. I said I live in New York. <laughs> he said, what? with your French accent, you live in New York." He said, "I want you to work with me and do breaking news with me." So did you did
0: you, did you say him with your Texas accent? Yeah,
1: exactly. I said we <laughs> with my Texas accent. So three weeks after, that's also the beauty of America. People recognize sometimes that they need you, and it goes quickly. So, uh, I went to New York, I was hired by rather I had a freelance contract for CBS, and it was... But uh, you
0: still were doing your work for... Canal uh, Plus, Kenel-
1: yeah. yeah, and I took a sabbatical from Canal Plus, and it was time for me to do something else. I really felt it, and it's my sixth sense which is telling me that. I always feel that that was time, I need to be with new people to learn something, I always want to learn new things. And uh, I i mean, Dan Rather, that was a big person. In yes. the, and he still is in the journalistic world, you know. And uh, CBS News at the time was a big name. And I said, OK, I really want to try to do that. So I also had a French passport. And um, the Middle East was going to... Explode, And the fact that I had a French passport was, in my opinion, a big plus for them because I was able to go to see, again, what I'm calling the other side. So they hired me and they asked me if I wanted to go to the Middle East. I went back together at the beginning of the war and then uh, really nothing happened. I desperately wanted to go to Iraq. So I based myself in Jordan for two months. And I can tell you that um, it was really hard for me to get a visa. I sit down in the Jordan embassy for two days and um, two <laughs> nights waiting for the visa. So they the,
0: uh, finally wanted, they were so desperate to get rid of you. Yeah, they to and you. I mean,
1: at the end, the, I, 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 I wish I could have his name. The the guy came and he said, you know, we're closing the Iraqi embassy in Jordan. You're the last one and I see you in the past two days and two nights. Okay, I'm going to give you your visa. <laughs> so I got the visa and I went, uh, I went to Baghdad. I worked for CBS there. And my assignment was as a producer to help them as a video journalist to document uh, what was happening to the life of the Iraqis people.
0: And But you stayed for a... Yeah, so
1: we were doing rotations six weeks, three weeks, six weeks in Baghdad, three weeks back in the United States or wherever you wanted to. And it was an extraordinary team. It was a collective group. And uh, there was Dan Rudder, there was another woman called Kimberly Doge, Elizabeth Palmer. There were... Extraordinary executive producers, uh, Peter Bluff, Jim Murphy. I mm-hmm. mean, there were good people, and we really wanted to show something. So I did that.
0: You, um, I, I spent some time, as you know, recently with your friend Christiana Amanpour. Yes, I met Christiane. And we talked yeah. about that, uh, about Iraq mm-hmm. and what went wrong. And uh, she said that. Uh, it was the after the war went fine it was the aftermath and the complete sort of misplaying of the situation after the war that led to where where we are
1: yeah I cannot agree more it was really the aftermath because when the Americans arrived in Baghdad the Iraqis and I was with the Iraqis at this time they didn't know what to expect and they were okay let's Maybe it's going to work. Saddam was not good for us, and let's see what's happening. And I always like to tell, again, stories about ordinary people. And there's a story which happened in Fallujah that I witnessed. Uh, in the July, July 2003, in Fallujah, the American troops were there, and the Iraqis wanted to talk to them. And they were doing a big lunch, you know, the Arabic lunch, And I remember that the tribal leaders, it took them one week to prepare what they called the Meshwi. And they wanted the Americans to have a good Meshwi. And when the American troops arrived, someone, it was probably in the first minute of the discussion, he said, can I have a Coca-Cola? And the level of trust was over from before the discussion began. I mean, it's... Everything was wrong with this sentence. It was something that you don't do in the Middle East, you know, the importance of having a coffee, the importance of sitting down. So I witnessed a lot of things happening like that. There were more and more troops acting this way. They didn't know what to do. There were also political decisions which were made by Paul Brenner at this time. And it was completely over in less than six months so the aftermath was not thought yeah definitely
0: that's the um what i learned in my brief uh, experience in government was the question that isn't often asked and the one that is most important is what's next you know exactly and it wasn't asked there i came to know you in uh, two thousand and
1: eight, yeah, so uh, on
0: the Obama campaign, I
1: remember the sweater you had in Iowa. I yeah. mean, it's one it of was it was
0: confiscated by the board yeah. of health. You had, had a horrible was, sweater. Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah. <laughs> I remember you were uh, in behind <laughs> the scene in uh, Des Moines, and I saw you. So I came back to uh, New York in two thousand six. I did not want to do wars anymore. I was really tired. I wanted a pause, and I said, "I maybe I'm going to walk." Uh, on a political campaign so everybody in france i went back to france because dan Rudder was fired in 2006 and i was part of the package so i went back to the french and they asked me do you want to follow hillary clinton and they said i'm interested by following someone who is an outsider and they said who and i said barack obama and i remember on the phone my editor telling me "Who?" (laughs) Barack who? And I said, we
0: got a lot of that back then. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And
1: I said, Barack Obama, because I was following the Democratic Convention in 2004. And I thought uh, his speech was quite eloquent. And I don't know, I wanted to do someone else than follow someone else than Hillary Clinton. So I went to Harlem, I remember, it was in October 2007. And I wanted to see Barack Obama in Harlem. And there were Thousands of people outside who wanted to come. And there was an energy, there was something. And I said, I want to see what's happening with this person. So I jumped there. I went to Iowa. You met me there. Yes. I think you told me, oh, if the French are there, maybe we have a chance.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and then I was part of the beginning of an extraordinary campaign. And I you, was.
0: You were with us in, uh, in Europe. I was we with you in the summer in of 2008. So you were there when we were in France, and you must have been there when we went to Germany. And
1: no, I was not oh, in Germany that was quite with a you. Scene. I know the Berlin Wall. Yeah. So
0: what was your impression when uh, of how the Europeans were reacting to him?
1: Oh my God! Uh, it was uh, they were fascinated by him, and they really wanted to follow him. They wanted him to be the American president. Why? Uh, because he was the symbol of hope. And a new face. And and you- I mean, there was, and the fact that he was uh, African-American was also a big thing for the French. Look what's happening in America. It's possible for someone like him to become president of the United States. And then he's doing an amazing campaign based on hope of change. He's inspired. He was very inspirational, and he still is. There was recently a poll in France that if Obama wants to be president of France, people are voting for him at eighty uh, percent. So I mean, he is a huge. He seems, I mean, he's extremely popular in France, uh, and it was not only the campaign; it was the energy, it was the civil society that you saw there after there in the reports, and a country which is switching and a country which is pushing for someone new. That was really important, and it still is. I mean, people have vivid memories on the 2007 campaign and the 2008 election. Uh,
0: Explain uh, what America... I I think Americans don't uh, perceive necessarily uh, completely what the role of our country is in the rest of the world?
1: I will say that the rest of the world is speaking about America when America doesn't speak at all about the rest of the world. So when there's a presidential campaign happening uh, in France, people are following that closely. Each night, each morning in the news, you have at least one or two reports about the contenders. People at this time knew John McCain, they knew Barack Obama, the new you. I mean, every day, really interested by American politics, because they think that America is still a big country in the world, and that they have to pay attention to what's happening in this democracy.
0: What uh, What's the mood now?
1: Depressed, worried, what's happening? Uh, are you still uh, the first uh, power in the world? What's going to happen with Donald Trump? If you go to France and if you have a discussion with uh, French people, they're going to ask you two questions. They're going to ask you, what's happening with Trump? Is he crazy? Is he going to be impeached? And then when you speak about Obama, they're going also to ask you a question about President Obama, which is what happened in Syria.
0: Uh, In Syria, yes, and his decisions. Yes,
1: absolutely. This is a a big question for the French people: Uh, what happened with him and his decision regarding Syria? Because then it has a direct effect.
0: Because of the migration, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You've uh, covered several terrorist attacks Mm -hmm. in France. Uh,
1: Not in. I was living in the U.S., but but you uh, you went back. When uh, the Jewish
0: school was attacked in Toulouse?
1: No, I was in the U.S. But uh, I followed that very closely because uh, I was always, and I'm still interested, by uh, the radicalization. I mean, I think uh, our daily life is forever, has forever changed.
0: You also commented from the U.S. Yes, on, on, on the, the, Bataclan the Charlie attacks. Hebdo. yeah, Charlie but-
1: Hebdo and on the Bataclan. Yes, because my friends were there. You know, I worked with a lot of young people. And uh, my brother lived in this neighborhood. And the Bataclan was... Uh, the, I don't like to do the comparison, but uh, it was the 9-11 of France. And um, it was a very tragic event. And, you know, for instance, uh, it happened on November 13th. It was two years ago. And uh, a few days ago, uh, President Macron went on the site and uh, all the French people were extremely moved. And me, I was extremely moved, but nobody was talking about that in the United States, that the Bataclan attacks happened two years ago.
0: And these attacks, have uh, France has felt uh, a heavy blow of that, obviously, the the British have. But these attacks are happening around Europe. What impact has this had on uh, on the politics of Europe?
1: It has a huge impact because it's in our daily life. There's now each week, unfortunately, an attack. Uh, uh, when you speak to the French people about that, they're not telling you, oh my God, it's over. We had the Bataclan. Everybody is prepared for when it's going to happen again, what's next. And we learn to live with that. And it has a big impact also on the debates inside the French political life because you can play a lot with terrorism, you can play a lot with the fear of people. And this is quite dangerous. And politicians, in my opinion, have to be extremely careful when they're exploiting the fear factor.
0: We're going to take a, another break, and we'll be right back with Laura Heim. You talk about the fear factor. We've seen uh, and you've studied, and, and here during your visit at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, you've been talking about the state of democracy uh, in Europe, um, and, uh, and you know there are similar, there, there are concerns on both sides of the the ocean here but uh you look at someone like angela merkel yes who is uh really uh, has been at the center of european politics for a decade more than a decade now uh unable to form a government because the right wing has. exactly
1: and that's uh, that's unfortunately i have to say a failure i mean people are afraid and when they're afraid, they go to the people who are saying what they want to hear. They're going to uh, what uh, people, uh, the populists know, they, they know really well how to do that, the exploitation of the fear factor, the exploitation of, look, he's coming to your country, he's going to be bad, he's going to do bad things, he's going to blow himself up, he's going to take your job. And when you, you're looking at this moment in Europe, at the populist movement, not only in Germany with the far right, but also, for instance, in Poland. Last week in Poland, mm-hmm. there was a demonstration with more than 60,000 people for the white Poland. You know, it's happening all over. And this is very, very scary because Europe has to be extremely strong together, united, to fight that and I always come back to the notion of education and to the notion of what is our responsibility when we're explaining something to people. Can we explain in a better way what's happening in the world? What are the important problems? And can we really do this type of deep work?
0: You made a decision. You, you, you've you spent your life in journalism. Yes. And you made a so, decision to take yes. a little a, a little detour into yeah politics, uh, and work so, for uh, a candidate who is considered kind of an, certainly an outsider, maybe a long shot when he began. But uh, talk about your association with Emmanuel Macron. Okay, so Macron.
1: I followed uh, Barack Obama. I'm going to be quite precise with you because I'm not sure even yourself you know the full story. So I... Uh, That's why I'm here. Yeah, exactly. So um, I followed Barack Obama for eight years in Washington. And then the last year I wanted to mm. know who was going to be the next president of the United States. And I went to Iowa, and I went to South Carolina, and I went to Florida. And I spent a lot of time in the bars, in the restaurants. I was documenting that for my channel, and I spoke with people. And there was always a name coming back, Trump. And I was, what? And I did not know really well Trump, you know. I was covering Barack Obama, I watched TV, I saw this guy saying you're fired, I I saw him as a TV personality, and then I really began to be interested by him. I followed his activities in New York as a businessman, and in April 2015, on French TV, I was questioned, and I said, uh, Donald Trump might become President of the United States. And I had a lot of fights with very powerful wish you'd people. wish you would give me a call. You could have saved me yeah, a lot of I, trouble there. But. No, but I've, and, uh, I went. Uh, I can tell you the story that I never said before, but uh, in the summer of 2015, I was invited in the Hamptons. And uh, someone, um, a very famous person, I, I, I can give his name, the founder of Doctors Without Borders, Bernard Kushner, asked me, who do you think is going to be president? I said, Trump has a big chance. And we had a terrible fight like screaming, he was screaming at me, you're crazy, you live too long here. And then I had a fight with my editors because I wanted a budget to cover Trump. I wanted to do a book about Trump and the publisher declined saying, you're crazy, you have been for too long in America. I remember the quote. And then finally, the Canal Plus people said, okay, we're going to give her a budget. And I covered Trump for one year. I felt that he was coming to the United States, to the political life. Because I'm not talking about his ideas. I'm talking about the way he was doing a campaign. He understood something inside the American society that... Very few people understood, and it's the desire of the middle class. And he was exploiting that in a very clever way. And I think people are saying, especially in France, he's stupid, he doesn't know what he does, this guy. And I always said, he's not stupid, he knows exactly how to do a good campaign. So I was quite known for that. So,
0: uh, how let me just stop you for a second and say, how much do you recognize in some of these? uh populist uh nationalist movements around Europe how much do you see intimations of what, you, what Trump has done and I continues to do I think Marine hear. Le
1: Pen, the, when she was running a campaign, well, it's very much inspired Marine by... Yes, in, Marine in Le Pen in France, uh, the, 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 the leader of uh, the National Front. She was extremely uh, inspired by, uh, by Trump. She wanted to be Trump woman. She did a campaign like Trump did. But, I mean, France is not the United States. So the populist message is very simple. It's a formula, you know. You go on stage, you have a lot of personalities, You're saying, I'm not a traditional politician. Uh, You're playing a lot with the cameras and with the crowd. Uh, You make sure that in each event, something unusual happened. Uh, You're doing a kind of political meeting like you're doing a kind of uh, game. Uh, You don't uh, develop uh, precise ideas. You have two or three good formulas. You make people loathe. And then that's it. You.
0: So so what so we were getting up to Macron and your yeah. decisions So then that
1: um my channel at the end of the Donald Trump campaign um my channel was my news division was completely destroyed because the new CEO came and said we want to do entertainment we do not want to do serious news anymore and this is an important element because we fought. We went on strike. You know, the French people love to strike. <laughs> and we uh, decided to go to the streets and to have uh, words saying, we're going to die, but we're going to die by defending serious journalism. And I was doing the Trump campaign at the time. I was deeply affected by that. At the end of the Trump campaign, I had to uh, film with my cell phone the Trump events. Uh, and uh, I, uh, of course, I was with uh, my co-workers uh, defending serious journalism. So after the presidential campaign, after eight years in Washington... I wanted a pause. I came back to Paris. I wanted really a pause because, of course, uh, against uh, the big corporation which wanted to do writings on entertainment, we lost. So the news division was completely killed. And uh, I said, that's it. I, I really have to think about what's happening. I went to Paris, We you know, in the beginning of December and I watched on my bed Macron on TV. It was uh, a meeting which is called the Porte de Versailles meeting, because suddenly Macron is on stage, and he's screaming, but really screaming, I'm going to change things, I'm going to be president, I'm going to do things. And he had passion, and I said, this guy, he's going to be president. I picked up the phone, and I called his team, and I said, listen, they told me, You want an interview? I said, no, I don't want an interview. You know what happened in my news channel. I just want to see how I can help you. I have some experience in America. Do you think I can have an appointment with him just to speak about what he wants to do? And then I had my appointment two days after. And uh, we spoke for 35 minutes. It was last year. And, uh, yeah, I uh, met him uh, in his office. His wife was there. And uh, I told him, listen, I think you're going to become president. And he said, what? I said, I really think you have a chance to become president of France because you're coming at the right moment. And I also saw a light in his eyes. And you probably saw that. But they're always the politicians, the people who want to do that. They have what I'm calling a special uh, gene. Mm-hmm. If, they're,
0: if they're successful.
1: Yeah, but even in the in the fight, mm-hmm. they want to do it. And sometimes you can see that people want to do it for s- something else than their own egos. They really want to transform a society. And did you
0: sense that from him?
1: Absolutely. Right away. I felt it.
0: Because he seems like a terribly ambitious person. Yeah,
1: but ambitious in but, my opinion is part of you know when you want to become president you have to be ambitious of
0: course yeah.
1: and uh, i saw that he was young he had a lot of energy uh, i was also interested a lot by his wife it was i mean you know there's, there's been a, a lot of interest in yes her because but, they're unusual well, i mean in december in you it's the first time i saw them together i saw I, I thought it was a very strong couple, and I still think it's a very strong couple. And then uh, he asked me if I wanted to become part of the team and to join the adventure. And I said, I just have to move from Washington. And he said, when can you come? I would like you to be there as soon as possible. So two weeks after, I was in Paris.
0: So what was that journey like because very
1: interesting, because I was crossing the line and I went to the other side. So. Was that
0: hard for you? Was very it, hard. Yeah.
1: And I mean, it was extremely hard. I
0: made that, journey, I made that switch, but much earlier in my career. It was
1: really hard. It was not hard with the candidate. It was hard with the people around because the people around are real politicians, and you you're coming from the civil society, and you're bringing something from the civil society, but, but they don't you have, want to hear it I mean yeah, uh, you have interesting discussions.
0: what about with your former colleagues in the in in the media?
1: Oh my God, I became the story of the week and even the months, And uh, there were jokes on French radio saying we speak much more about her than we speak about Macron. So it was good for Macron because, I mean, the thing which was good for Macron was the ability to show that he was able to capture uh, people from the civil society. There was me, there was a very, very strong economic advisor. His name is Jean Pisani Ferry, was very reliable, very serious. And he came at the right time. And each day in January, Macron announced someone coming from the civil society, joining En Marche. And you have to remember, it's not America, it's France. Traditional parties. Yes, uh, he his own am- So he created his movement and he was able to show, okay, at En Marche, we're able to have people from the civil society joining us uh, what i
0: what, what what i was wondering about though was did you was there any cynicism on the part of your colleagues that you had somehow sold out or that you yes were not, of that course. you, you, you
1: uh, the, yeah. traded
0: in your object uh,
1: no it was not cynicism it's it was why did you do that I mean, that was the question. You're a serious journalist. You have been through a lot. You're respected. Why do you cross the line? Because it's not like in America. When you cross the line in France, you're crossing the line. And I said, uh, because uh, maybe I have been disappointed by the kind of journalism I wanted to do. And that was my motivation. I mean, what do I want to do as a journalist? Do I want to do serious issues? Or do I want to do two minutes clip Mm -hmm. about an Hollywood star? And I think it was the time for me to switch to do something still serious about, you know, a society, and to see the other side, I thought, and I'm very American on that because uh, I have this debate in France, and I'm always saying, I think in one life you can have multiple lives, and I defend this idea. Uh, yeah,
0: you, uh, you, but you didn't accept a position. In the government, you could have, yeah, and you and you decided not to. So, having made the switch when I, because it came to I, governing, I, you didn't you didn't no, want to do. No, because I
1: think that you have two times. Uh, you have the campaign and you have the government aspect. And I was not sure, and I had this discussion uh, with uh, the president. I was not sure that I was going to be able to function inside the government. Mm-hmm. And I. Uh, well,
0: journalists by nature are iconoclasts. They're challenging authority, challenging institutions. Yes. It's a tough adjustment to move inside of government.
1: Yeah, and I always want to be critical, and I also wanted to make sure that I was going to be accepted by the team. And uh, I think uh, at one point uh, I did a campaign, and for me it was time to go back to there the US. Was the issue of your
0: c- uh, dual citizenship? That's I that
1: have was- an American passport, so uh, when you have an American passport and when you have a French passport, I think one day you have to choose which country you prefer. And you did. I came back to Chicago.
0: Yes, <laughs> and we, we were happy. We're happy to have you. Um, Talk for a couple of minutes about Macron, where he is now. He seems to have uh, ambitions to be a force for the reconciliation of Europe. He's clearly trying to reform some of the institutions of France. Uh, And these are major lifts. Uh, How do you think he's doing?
1: I think he's going very quickly and that's part of his strength in my opinion and his uh, ambition. Uh, He definitely wants to reform France in a unusual aspect and I'm saying that Macron is now the new CEO of France. Uh, He really wants to change everything. He's trying uh, he he did a lot of things in less than six months. Uh, People uh, when he was elected said in France everybody is going to be in the street. The unions are going to demonstrate it's going to be a new French revolution in the fall. It didn't Happen. So he already did a lot of changes uh, about, he did a loop to moralize the political life. He uh, did some executive orders about uh, how the working system is operating in France when your company, how you can be more flexible, how you can fire more people, how you can hire more people. People, so he, he's doing a lot of things which have never been done before. He has a very good image all over the world. He's trying to be a key player on the international scene. So that's the positive thing. so
0: I saw internally his approval rating is so around forty I, I, in the low forties.
1: Yeah, but I will say that it's a difficult country to change, and uh, due to the fact now I'm outside and I have my freedom of speech, uh, I will say mm-hmm. that uh, you have to be careful about. Two France because you have a France which is ready to move on which understands the globalization which uh, really want to create companies and which is extraordinary and then you that's have, his base uh, that's his base and other people also and you have another France which is you know attached to other things it doesn't mean good or bad but for instance when uh, you are 55 years old you maybe do not have the energy to create another company and to go back to the beginning or to move to another city and this second France he has to be careful with them that's my feeling
0: that's of course there's another parallel there with the united states because that is the that is the core of the trump constituency when you say make America great again that really resonates with these 55 year olds who aren't going to or, or don't want to retrain and move and
1: yes yeah, so, uh, macron was aware during the campaign he was talking about that and he said we're going to do formation so if you're losing your job at 40 or 45 years old there will be a special program which will be put in which, we, which will be in place to teach you another job but it's also in the mentalities you know, uh, you have to make sure that you're not just doing a country for the startups Yes. And yeah. on the other way, uh, a lot of uh, people want France to change. So, you know, we're very complex. We love to debate. We love to go to the street when there's something happening. Uh, the French people love to have long intellectual discussions. For instance, during the campaign in France, I was mess When I arrived to see how a French campaign is happening compared to an American campaign, because you cannot do a stump speech. You know, in America, the candidates are doing 22 minute speech. Macron, his speech was for two hours, 30 minutes. And sometimes we had to tell him it's too long. You cannot do that. And he said, I need to do those type of speeches because the French people love substance. And it's true. The French, they love substance They take politics very seriously, and they like when someone is explaining to them for two hours what he wants to do. two and a half
0: hours could be substance abuse, I don't know.
1: No, 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 it was very good. I mean, when you speak about important issues, you know, uh, it's like uh, what's happening in uh, the TV world. I mean, we had different laws in France. We have the principle of equality, like uh, the last two weeks of the French presidential campaign, Each candidate, by law, has the same amount of time on TV Mm -hmm. and on radio, which, as you know, didn't happen in the United States. But the French people and the French system are taking very seriously their responsibilities about democracy.
0: Last thing, because I'd be remiss if I didn't ask. Everybody here was sort of fascinated by the world's. You talk about long speeches. We also saw the world's longest handshake. Between Macron and Trump.
1: I was not in the room when it happened, but I can tell you, knowing uh, Emmanuel Macron, that it was not at all prepared. I think it was like a moment in which Donald Trump took his hand. There were a lot of photographers. And don't forget, Emmanuel Macron is 39 years old. He's young. So... Sometimes, you know, yes, he's doing a handshake and he doesn't know how in which direction it's going to go. And then the press is speaking about the handshake. But uh, I really think that in a more serious way for Emmanuel Macron from the beginning, the relation between the United States and France is extremely important.
0: So he's, gonna, he's going to try and work with Trump. They, they have Absolutely. probably a better relationship from a distance than Trump has with a lot of other traditional American allies.
1: I was witnessing the first phone call between Donald Trump and Emmanuel Macron. And I can tell you that uh, on serious issues, they're definitely uh, going to work together. I mean, there's a big disagreement about the Paris Agreement. On climate change. On climate change. But on the fight uh, against terrorism, Uh, yes, it's important. And I really think you have to understand that about uh, President Macron you know he's young he wants to do something he wants to build up a new france he wants to build up a new europe and uh, i hope he's going to succeed
0: lorheim it's been a such a pleasure to have you here it this quarter been. at the university of chicago and i i you're you're a person who's had great impact with your journalism you've had great impact uh, in your brief political career and I, I look forward to seeing what you're going to do now.
1: Thank you, David. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app.
1: And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.